So Dynatrace is a pretty unique company. They're a leader in this space called observability, which for people that don't understand observability, it's the entire world is run on software and Dynatrace basically provides the intel, the insight into the performance of everything that's running from the application, the infrastructure, all the services that interconnect it out to the end users. See, I know all of this stuff because I used to work at Dynatrace and was part of the team that defined a lot of this messaging. But I have always wondered, for a company that is so essential to building the software that runs everyone else's software, where do you start? Where did you come up with this idea? Because the software world is already so complicated. And to be able to understand the nuances as the cloud changed and AI came in, to be able to keep abreast of what is going on and develop the software that runs the software, it's super interesting. So I got the opportunity to sit down with Bernd Greifenader, who's the original founder of Dynatrace and is someone who I've worked with for a long period of time when I worked at Dynatrace and found him to be fascinating, both technically minded, but also so visionary in the way he thinks about product development and go to market and also the culture behind building really successful teams. For anyone that knows Dynatrace, they know Dynatrace as an execution engine, rarely missing on their vision for where they want to be and the alignment of teams to get there. I sat down with Bernd, the CTO now and, and founder of the company, and talked to him about the transformation that occurred at Dynatrace. They went from being this leader in APM with a cash cow of a product to radically changing they're complete go-to-market. They brought a new product to market that no one, even internally at Dynatrace, knew they were working on. Called it a completely different name and essentially disrupted themselves in order to be successful and emerge as the leader in that category. And as these things all came together, it became obvious, hmm, we need to completely reinvent ourselves and create a new generation uh, of Dynatrace. And these were the plans. And uh, when we presented them, the first reaction was, hey, I mean, you guys, you're crazy. I mean, you, you can't start <laughs> over there because I mean, we have existing customers and this is totally different. And then the conversation started, but if you do something new and this new thing is even SaaS, then you cannibalize sort of the other one uh, offering and so forth. And um, those discussions were hard. And, um, and then the only way sort of to really convince back then the, the, the board, not just the CEO, the CEO was almost the easier one, but the board was the hardest back then. Uh, and we used, uh, or I, I brought in the history of Kodak. He shares the story of what they had to do to make that be successful, how he pitched it to the board and eventually moving towards the vision for that product, how we had to reverse engineer it, which meant also educating everyone on sales, moving customers over to this new platform, to the successful IPO of the company. And then where are they going now with this massive scale and a, and a platform called Grail with a more advanced AI. It's a really fascinating conversation. It's one where I feel like an hour wasn't long enough. I feel like we could have dissected this into so many different parts. And as much as I wanted it to be two different episodes or maybe even three different episodes, it just didn't make sense. So consume this any way that you like. Take your time to listen to the story and hear from one of the really most successful CTOs and visionary product leaders that you'll meet. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Bert, it's been a while. It's really, really good to see you. <laughs> Dave, yeah, likewise. That's um, awesome to see you this way. Yeah, it's a shame we haven't been able to catch up for a beer. I always loved the time that I spent with you. I loved the things that you taught me about being a leader and um, and just scaling an organization. You're just an incredible human being, someone to learn from. So I'm really looking forward to this podcast. 
Yeah, me too. And by the way, I had to import an Australian barista by now into our Lynx <laughs> office sort of to get some feel of, um, of you and your culture. <laughs> Tell us about Dynatrace. Tell us about, it's a phenomenal story. I was part of the journey for anyone that didn't know. Um, I was part of that journey for a little while. Remarkable company. You're one of the founders of this company. It was your brainchild. It's been super successful. Where did it start? Yeah, so it all started in the age of the dot-com boom when sort of there were so many online shops popping up and all of them tried to figure out bring users online. But uh, it was also at the time when I was part of a um, uh, load testing company already as a co-founder um, with my current chief software architect. And with those load tests, we had sort of uh, both um, a good and a bad situation. The good was our product worked beautifully and crashed their site with 50 users. The bad was customers were unhappy because they knew finally that their site would crash with 50 users. Uh, and so they could not go live with their new online shop. So, but this also was then the pain leading to me think about, so how can we actually help these customers figure out what is the root cause of their online shops crashing so that we could help them not only identify um, the bad situation, but also help them move in to fix uh, that. And this was also then the time that I did evaluate some products that were out there on the market. And uh, some of the load tests I did revealed that, oh, this profiler crashed with 20,000 hits and uh, this was already the best on the market. So I figured there needs to be something actually that is production ready that holds the loads. But also I figured um, already in that age of a typical three-tier architecture and me being an architect that I can't live with just a pro typical profiler probability tree sort of that would tell me, okay, here's a CPU hotspot because uh, it doesn't help me fix an issue. I needed to understand actually from a user's click what is happening to the front end tier, back end tier, and ultimately how is it hitting the database? Because this actually then revealed that, oh, one click does do um, a thousand calls to the database. And while each individual calls to the database was well tuned, um, a thousand calls was sort of uh, death by a thousand cuts to, to the whole situation. And this also drove me then to actually realizing, hmm, just a single tier profiling does not cut it. I need to see the individual users click, follow that, and follow that across multiple tiers. And this revealed sort of in the original idea of Dynatrace, sort of dynamic tracing of a user's click from front to back end. And also this trace is that we also back then named PurePath and sort of this became core fundamental idea and technology to Dynatrace. Are these things that when you were thinking of, I have this problem and no one else is doing it, I want to go out and solve that problem. Were you doing that on your own? Were you doing that with a group of people? And how do you go about brainstorming and discovering what you think the solution could be? Yeah, so how we do innovation work today is very different than back then, because back then, yes, yeah. it was sort of me alone. And my two co-founders gladly were not technicians because they helped with finance and marketing and sales and so forth, which which was crucial sort of as a team. Um, but back then it was mostly about sort of feeling the pain of users myself. And maybe what was helping is that um, my co-founder actually was running herself Austrian's largest uh, online shop for office supplies. And she had the pain also of sort of um, they, her website not working. This helped her actually then also with go-to-market and then the sales process with that background. But it's, it is this mixture of understanding the customer's pain, understanding technology about what is available and how, how should it work, 
but also being naive as well, sort of naive as well. No, I don't like what's out there. I want a different, and and I'm sort of crazy enough to believe I can uh, do it better. Obviously, not knowingly that I could do it better, but you just want it to be different. And this is also the piece, just not being happy with the status quo. No, I want to understand uh -huh. how this works, why it doesn't, and there needs to be something that's better than than a classic profiler. Just, just what you said about the status quo, not being happy with the status quo. That's something that has been ingrained in me in working with you for a long period of time. Is that a cultural trait that still exists within Dynatrace today? And is it something that you really encourage people to, uh, to, to challenge the status quo? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's there. And that's actually also very important um, when onboarding and hiring new people, because sort of one of the moments that drive me really nuts is when someone comes in and says, oh, OK, so this is a new open source standard project. And so and if we just do also what they do, then we're good, right? No, no, not at all. Our aim is to be superior and better than the status quo. And sort of this is a clear aim and not, not easy for everyone. Does that like to, how do you get everyone in context? I, I really want to talk about the original story of Dynatrace, but you've already like, and you, you often do this, have got me down a rabbit hole really now trying to understand if everyone's challenging the status quo, how do you stay in an equilibrium? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good question. I mean, it is sometimes not easy to actually celebrate enough. So this is also why so we have a, a quarterly achievement celebration um, just to make sure we we stop for a moment and not just sort of whip ourselves all the time. Hey, we're not good enough, but actually now look what we have achieved because it's so often that it feels we have not achieved anything because we want so much more. But when we look back, then it's stunning what actually has happened and it's when you look backward it's always more than you thought but it, in the moment yeah. in the status quo people think hey nothing is moving and this is such an odd psychology and so this is why why sort of we have these celebrations um because obviously we can't celebrate every sprint because every sprint is a major release so this would be too often so this is why we do it on a quarterly basis but very much on focusing on, on on the value we bring to the customer and what innovation sort of really helps them in their daily life so so, so take me then back and take me back to like your early days we, we can do a couple of chapters here i think for the people that are listening there's the early days of dynatrace there's this reinvention of Dynatrace, which is a really remarkable story where you basically completely fundamentally flipped everything within the company. And then there's like a post IPO, new grail, new hyperscale Dynatrace. There's like these three chapters, I think, in my head. Take me to the early chapter. How are you getting funding? Where are you getting your customers from? What are the pains you're going through? And where's the success coming from? Yeah, so that's an interesting story, sort of in situation. We we knew after sort of uh, six, six, seven years, we need to make something, uh, make some fundamental changes to Dynatrace, sort of um, the the first version of it. So we still had a rich client. We wanted a web interface. We sold back then primarily to power users. We wanted to reach a broader audience, but to reach a broader audience, it also meant how can we make it a bit more automatic to do, for instance, the root cause analysis, because the power users, they loved it sort of, there were 15 right mouse menu drill downs and they did yeah. drill down, drill down, drill down, and, and they really loved that. So, but, but for the average user, this was too complicated because you had to know what to search for. And, and this drove us also thinking, so hmm, how do we need to change the, the, the entire approach to go about the data? Because it was clear and every customer stated this back then as today, we have the best data of sort of all of these observability approaches in the market. Um, 
and so the the analysis sort of is is then the key the key aspect um bringing the value then to the users so and also back then when we realized this we need some of this change um to make it easier to analyze it was also a moment when we had the opportunity to actually m merge and converge um, our offering that was focusing on dynamic tracing with instrumentation from the inside out with synthetic monitoring and even a network monitoring offering. And back then the CEO sort of approached me, hey, Bern, can you please sort of bring those three products together to a compound offering? And said, okay, if you want me to do so. I mean, I had enough to do sort of with the... Uh, Dynatrice um, product, but okay, let's have a look at it. And then I looked at it and figured, oh, damn, this becomes a Frankenstein if I try to sort of plug them together. And uh, sort of we had those duct taping pictures sort of as an anti-pattern. Right. No, we do not want to do that um, because I'm a believer in, in, in a cohesive offering that provides a, a true seamless experience. And the only consequence I could draw from there is in order to bring synthetic monitoring and some of these network monitoring aspects together with Dynatrace was create a unified uh, offering. And if you already sort of start more green field, this works well with also the other ideas of, hey, we need to figure out how we do some major analytics changes to the original Dynatrace. And as these things all came together, it became obvious, hmm, we need to completely reinvent ourselves and create a new generation uh, of Dynatrace. And these were the plans. And uh, when we presented them, the first reaction was, hey, I mean, you guys, you're crazy. I mean, you, you can't start <laughs> over there because I mean, we have existing customers and this is totally different. And then the conversation started, but if you do something new and this new thing is even SaaS, then you cannibalize sort of the other one uh, offering and so forth. And um, those discussions were hard. And, um, and then the only way sort of to really convince back then the, the board, not just the CEO, the CEO was almost the easier one, but the board was the hardest back then. Uh, and we used, uh, or I, I brought in the history of Kodak. Kodak completely missed out in their history, the digital camera market, because they had the fear of cannibalizing the, the film production, sort of repeatedly selling film and sort of uh, film development machines and so forth. They had, in fact, even the best camera, digital camera up front, but then they did never make the business move. Instead of just telling this story back then was, was really bringing the knowledge of the board over the hump uh, to say, oh, okay, so it makes sense, but, but make this SaaS only and the other one is on-prem. So we could have sort of almost two different product lines. And that worked then pretty well because we started completely greenfield SaaS only, um, dealt with that more modern uh, customer, cloud first, um, everything, uh, self-service onboarding, everything super modern from that approach. And this also allowed us to start over with the idea, hey, if we already do this greenfield, then the analytics must be completely automatic as well. And we can do it, we have the data. So now we have this opportunity to um, create something that would look at all the customers' IT infrastructure, understand all sort of the services that run in the cloud or even on-premises, and understand also where they would run sort of these ones run in AWS. I mean, then there is um, another service on top and there's additional AWS database services and we would understand all of that. And having that understanding, this was sort of for us always the fundamental idea because only if you bring all the understanding together, sort of not just 
the monitoring data itself, but also the understanding how the monitoring data um, related to each other. So what is the dependency of the front-end service to the back-end service? When, when we understood that, then we would have really the holy grail of analyzing then the root cause. So this was the fundamental idea and hypothesis. And this is then also what we developed. So we developed a complete auto discovery of that environment, created then a dependency model automatically, what back then was known as, I think, business service management, sort of BSM. Mm -hmm. This was sort of this manual configuring those dependencies or others, uh, managed CMDBs and still people do manage CMDBs today. What sort of we figured out how to do them fully automatically because it also required lots of the tracing abilities in order to build this model up. But, but this was the fundamental then actually to um, create analysis algorithms and routine that um, at some point we woke up and figured, oh, based on the definition of AI, this is even AI. And this is how sort of, without actually knowing that we built AI, we had invented some form of AI that we today call causal AI, because it is all fact-based and dependency-based rather than uh, correlation, because correlation is guesswork and this is knowing, okay, this end user suffers because of the hope goes to that service, the next service in this backend is the issue. So knowing this was fundamental, and this was sort of then the, the birth of something fundamentally different and sort of the, if you, if you want, the second generation of Dynatrace. And looking forward, yes, from this, this also drove to, I believe, like with everything else in the world, sort of in, in a rhythm of approximately every seven years, there needs to be something fundamentally new and different and changed to also adapt to the, to the world because the world is changing too. You have told that story so well. For anyone listening, they might not understand how market-leading AppMon Dynatrace was at the time. Like we're talking, I can't remember the exact revenues, but it was hundreds, 300, $400 million in revenue would roughly maybe for, for a product like that. To bring in a brand new product, you can understand why the board went, uh, you nuts? Because that was a lot of money for, it was, a, it was the market leading solution sitting in the top of the magic quadrant. And you bring in the Kodak, you disrupt and say, we want to do this. Now I've got to ask you, what if they said no? Was it unanimous where they were like, yep, <laughs> do it, trial it? Or was it like, this guy's crazy? Um, wow, don't ask me that question, what I would have done <laughs> if I got the no. So this would be not good. <laughs> no. Well, there, it's history anyway, right? You did a, you reinvented at a time where other companies didn't, New Relic didn't, and then there were others that just didn't do it. And what you've just taken us through is the essence of Smartscape auto dependency mapping with an automatic root cause that's just revolutionary in the market. 10 12 years ago why well, 10 years ago 10 years ago roughly so maybe one comment to this point because if i think this is important and maybe also for the audience the one big luck i had is at that time when sort of we had this kodak uh, analogy and question we had a ceo who did believe in in the powers of the engineering team we had in place and also a CEO who understood that something new takes at least three years to bring it to the market and five years for the hockey stick to kick in. And not every CEO is willing to have that belief in that sort of long breadth. And I think That's this a is point. a fundamental requirement for everyone else out there who wants to re sort of invent and uh, innovate, you need quite a breadth in belief to make that happen. Otherwise, you, you fail fast early because also, I mean, we had situations where I, I uh, spent 20 million a year and had a million in revenue with this 
new <laughs> offering. Obviously, then we had a new board and the new board was, for good reasons, totally questioning this. So what's going on? I mean, should we kill this? I mean, and, and if we didn't have a CEO also being in behind, no, let's give them time. This There is sort of logic to the madness of this, then, then this would never have worked out. So I think this is also fundamentally important. And I've got to ask, so I completely agree with you. So leadership on board being absolutely critical to the tech teams to give them the space, the time, the investment to be able to do what they need to do. The way you did it, though, was you created a department of the unknown. You completely like did this thing in secret and had created a new culture and a new way of engineering. And I believe that would had to have been purposeful. Yeah, it was funny when at some point... Um, we as Dynatrice were asked by external people uh, whether we have acquired now this company out there. But this company was not acquired, actually. Um, we had a startup inside of our organization. And it was for me a very fantastic opportunity because I stepped into sort of the role of a, of a virtual founder CEO sort of not not the formal title, but I had my own engineering team, I had my own marketing team, I had my own sales team, and we basically created all this new shiny SaaS offering uh, completely standalone, under the radar, under a dedicated brand. We did a completely separate launch on the market, dedicated trade shows. It was not known as Dynatrace at all. Um, it was known as Roxid with this brand. Um, in, and this was all intentionally in order not to cannibalize, but also it gave us the room and freedom to play with new onboardings, with new ease of use. And we could actually focus more on the, uh, uh, on the innovation parts than on, on the enterprise functionalities. You mean... Mm -hmm sort of as a business, you you make money when you have then the enterprise functionalities with your product. I mean, this is single sign-on, all the security, all the certifications. I mean, this is all what's required for enterprise business, all good and important. But when you have only sort of so, so enough uh, energy and resources available, this separation gave us the opportunity to focus on the innovation first sort of building this ai first building completely new approach to um user interface and sort of with the mantra everything automatic and um and, and this environment achieved this but also sort of there with all the goods of it it also had a flip side as well. The flip side was how to integrate it then back in. <laughs> the, I, I, so it was, it's remarkable how you did it. And when you said you went to other events, you actually did come to Dynatrace events at the time. And I remember sitting there and going, what's this? Who are these people? And I was like, when I even had a look, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. And you start finding out, you go, you guys are from Dynatrace? Oh, no, we're from Roxette. And you go, uh-huh. And it was like confusing, even for people that were internal. But what you also, and I want to touch on how you integrated it back in, because actually the engineering approach and the culture was radically different to what you were doing before. Like you weren't doing quarterly releases. You were doing really rapid fire releases. And I remember at the time you talking up on stage about no ops and just this real engineering first mindset. And it was quite unique in the market. And I was like, wow, this is really, really interesting. And when you're not bogged down by enterprise support and requests from large companies, you can go really fast on innovation. You don't have to worry about legacy code and variations of software. You get to create this new and you created something ridiculously successful. Yeah, it's all pain, pain drives, pain changes, sort of back to disliking the status quo. So we we had actually back then also through sort of um, some some mergers back then, um, an operations team follow the sun. But also it meant with this new offering, we would have within our engineering team also some people 
who would be 24-7 available. And back then, sort of, I disliked this. Hey, I need my best people, actually, to create the cool, innovative stuff and not create and write run books and watch charts and dashboards. So, and alone, this pain drove us um, as part of the new architecture of this um, sort of second generation of Dynatrace drove us to thinking, hmm, what if you built everything the way that it was self-healing? And um, we were obviously not, not sure whether this could be done, but this was the clear aim. So when we launched, when we did the first GA, it was sort of still a semi-launch. We had automated a lot. We built uh, with a team of seven people a dedicated orchestration uh, service that would take care of everything up and running, auto-scaling and so forth. And we did monkey tests in AWS, sort of killing an instance and all this needs to be robust and up and running, uh, which, which worked, but we were unsure. So we still kept the operations team alongside and they asked us to write run books. So we did write a few run books, but then also, again, unhappy with the status quo, we made then sort of some fun game internally and said sort of every one month, I'd like to see at least one run book go away and be replaced by automation. And eventually this went fa much faster than anticipated after just three months. We were down to one single run book and guess what that one single run book said? If self-healing does not work, call R&D. This was period. This was everything. But, but this was the moment when we knew we really arrived at no ops and we switched them to a mode to have R&D on standby. Also with this idea, um, have the architects who created that self-healing architecture be responsible for operations wake them up when something is failing and the self-healing does not work because guess what what happens they make the self-healing better and yeah, yeah. so that they don't have to wake up again and this actually uh worked really well and um this drove the whole no ops and we later called it um autonomous cloud and cloud automation um uh, a lot forward so if you break it, you should fix it is sort of your, your mentality there. Now, the company is successful. The uh, I was there at the time. I remember pivoting and going, we're going off this. Sorry, everyone who's on that existing uh, product, but there's, this is the future. We're all going this way. You need to learn how to use this new product. And bit by bit, we started migrating everyone over to the new product. Take us through the pain the simplicity the success the, how did you feel about the way in which the company was able to basically bring that new dynatrace back in and then lead with that through to a successful ipo yeah i think the uh, the biggest challenge and pain is the human psychology of no one wants change <laughs> But sort of to fast forward, um, just two years later, after sort of we knew we need to sort of transition here to um, a, a new Dynatrace, we realized all together, including customers, hey, this transition was much easier. And if we could have done it faster and everyone would have been even happier. Um, and this is always surprising with these changes, sort of upfront, no one wants it, but once you're, once you're over the hump, everyone would have wanted it even faster. So, um, and, and, and with this in mind, um, it was really that with every quarter we moved into this transition period, we realized we can be a tick faster, or we can push a bit more, and it actually worked. But we had a clear program to figure out sort of which customers first and which customers next and so forth, because obviously we wanted to make it also easy and seamless for them. And um, eventually 
the uh, the new abilities were so attractive that it sort of it was not the question of how do I get over the pain, but more a question of explaining hey, here is the value, and this value is just much bigger than uh, a transition pain. Yeah, it's a it's a, an iPhone to a Nokia or a Tesla to a to a traditional car, right? Like it was fundamentally different, had AI at the core and, and hugely successful. Now, it's had huge scale. So we saw a huge difference of people using this product and, and that must have felt really good. The company was very successful and went through rapid um, growth. And then there was a public offering. I'm super interested. I didn't, never got the opportunity to ask you this question. How did you feel personally when the company went public? So this was super awesome. I've never thought in my life that something like this would happen. And especially uh, I recall the, the most emotional moment was um, at the trading floor at New York Stock Exchange. I really had tears coming down because this was just an amazing moment when you had the first time sort of the stock ticker showing your price. Because this is then a moment when you realize sort of there is something that that happened um, here to the teams that you're responsible for, and um, also it meant hey, there is now more opportunity to bring this product to even more people. Because there there are two things that are driving me personally. The first one is providing value to customers, and the second one is very egoistic. That's building better product than competitions. Kind of those are the two things. And this was sort of definitely at the trading floor, sort of a moment giving me additional confidence sort of in, in driving this this forward. And and this was also in that regard super amazing because it could have gone differently because we were owned by a private equity investor and history had shown that pretty much close to 100% in the past they did sell off to other companies. So I was super happy that they changed also their approach and mind and started to also do IPOs. And I feel this is sort of much better being the Dynatrace now and deal with the scaling than rather being just part of a different organization. So think this was to me two big reasons to be way more than just happy and amazing sorry did i i knew it was a monumental moment i don't think anyone in an audience maybe who isn't and hasn't started a company could appreciate the emotional feeling it would feel do, do you still like when the you you build a brand new headquarters in austria like a fabulous new building that you know, everyone, if you drive in Austria and you ask the taxi driver, where can you take me to the Dynatrace office? They know where it is. It's probably one of the only parts of the world where you can actually do that. And it's a renowned brand there. Do you still feel that immense satisfaction every time you go into the office? Or are you just like, what are we building better next? <laughs> so actually, we are going to triple the size. <laughs> Amazing. So, um, yes, and, and we are still, even after the times uh, of COVID and uh, work from home, we are expanding this because this is part of our culture and, and innovation. But back to your question. So, yes, I do have my moments when I uh, walk in the office and I'm sort of very often in the office, um, I, uh, I like especially the moments either at the barista cafeteria, sort of more, more the informal moments because Zoom meetings can be done anywhere. But meeting the people, meeting the people you don't see all the time on Zoom, this is the most important part where you also get lots of work done. And then I do have my moments when I look at them, look at the team, where I feel feel both feel pride but also responsibility at the same time sort of that's, that's, that's awesome. And, um, but also then maybe the final say here is 
the city of Linz is not large. I mean, this has 250,000 people. So it's compared to other cities, tiny. Uh, yeah. But also this makes it interesting in terms of also now feeling a bit of responsibility in changing the city and also making sure this is a fantastic place for internationals coming because this is all about continued growth as well. To maintain that growth, you were someone that always taught me the importance of scale, autonomous decision-making with context. What are the most important principles as a leader that you're trying to instill in your engineering and R&D teams? Yeah, maybe the, the very shortest um, about what I do expect from a leader is one word, and that is being proactive and because i see sort of definitely people who are sort of formerly leaders but then they're more managing and yes you need managers too but to me sort of leadership is one of the most important sort of um treats that that we need to innovate as a scaling organization because um with so many people and it's um right now over 1500 just in the engineering team um that is plenty so how do you organize this how do you ensure that we still on one hand work on one single um offering even if we have divided up into different solutions but it's still one and the same platform and and all cohesive so that is definitely challenging. So you need leaders that are participate the overall vision, while at the same time work as autonomously in their particular focus area, so that it's not sort of a just top down, um, burnt headset kind of approach. And, th and this balance is definitely tricky. This is ongoing tricky, especially with onboarding many new people who all have to figure out various the balance between autonomy and and sort of okay now you need to first figure out uh, the alignment with management and this is also then sort of a uh, autonomy principle is on one hand super helpful um, <clears throat> because the autonomy principle says everyone can make any decision but also with this important second sentence, uh, but you have beforehand to consult everyone who is being impacted by that decision you're about to make. And, and sort of the tricky part is that many either intentionally or likely, most likely completely unintentionally um, um, ignore or fail on well enough execution on the second part and consult the impacted people because that is work and you get more feedback and it usually makes it harder. But it's all about alignment in scaling. And um, now you could argue, oh, this is now as you grow more and more meetings. Yes, it's more and more meetings. But if you're not aligned, then it's even worse Then people make decisions on their own then, and then you have to undo them later. This is even uh, more waste of energy and time. So spending um, a good amount of time into alignment is mandatory and the organization continuously has, has to learn that properly. But it's not always lots of meetings is something that you taught me too, it's workshops that actually can get you doing a bit more of a deep dive discovery with a group to really get the insights. Do you want to share a little bit on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, it is organizing sort of work into um, value creation elements. And this is also where it's important to me that the uh, formal organizational hierarchy is not the means to get work done, but it's more how do you bring the right talent uh, at the right time in the right sort of structure together that we call value creation teams 
and um, work within those value creation teams then in order to drive a proper outcome. And, and that is really helpful, although also it's not always easy for people. No, this is my sort of home team. I don't want to switch. So this is an organizational challenge. But in terms of total effectiveness, we, we figured that this is a, a still a very good way of working. So once sort of these value creation teams are defined, and by the way, those can exist and be short living as one sprint, but they can also live for years, those value creation teams. Um, <clears throat> once those are defined, alignment happens in workshops, but not just alignment in the sense sort of the boss tells, but alignment in the sense of, oh, this is our goal, this is our charter, this is what we want to solve, this is other pains. Now let's work together off what the solution path might be and should be. And, and we call those then also uh, um, some of those workshops deep dives where it's more deeper into either architecture or deeper into go to market or deeper into some growth topics. So whatever it is, but, but having, giving the teams a feel of that they are contributing to the solution and not getting told is very important because that's also the way in order for them to bring in enough of autonomy and innovative idea, ideas into the process. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a siloed scenario. This is like a mesh fluid scenario where you're moving people around and, and that can create probably a really collaborative culture. Yeah. Correct. And so it's, it's definitely for me, pretty much, yeah, the, the most effective way, but it's also heavily matrixed. So it doesn't make it easier in order to organize. So that's maybe the trade-off, but in terms of outcome with that amount of people, why the number um, seems large. They're compared to other companies. I'm pretty proud about the output that we're achieving. So we've got, I could spend, I reckon, hours, and I look forward to at some point having a beer with you and talking to you again. But uh, in the interest of this podcast and those listening, it's been nearly seven years, Bert. What have you been doing? Are you working on anything new that you want to share with everyone? What's Dynatrace up to? Yeah, so I mean, to be honest, this... Um, February, this year's February at the annual conference perform. This was to me, one of the most important moments in the history of Dynatrace because we uh, announced there the cornerstones of yet uh, another Dynatrace. It is for, from customer perspective, fairly seamless um, to most of them in order to move to the, the Dynatrace, sort of not as different in the change to the past. But what's happening under the hood of this new Dynatrace is fundamentally changing. And this is also, um, for me, the, the track into the future of also a continued growing company. Sort of to be a bit less cryptic here, sort of, what, what we have done with the second generation, this was everything about fully automatic. And this was awesome for customers because they could do observability fully automatic and got the answers there, the root cause there. Um, everything was automatically baselining. They had not to configure much of the standard core observability. It was more than sort of enterprise uh, configuration around that. And this was fantastic from that side that so much was automatic, but also it had a flip side. And the flip side was that customers loved what's there in Dynatrace as the data, but they could not go beyond the use cases that were built in. And we can't build all of the use cases that customers come up with. So hey, I would like to use your data for forensics. Sort of how could I do this? And back then we did not have an answer. But with those announcements and actually releases of Dynatrace this year, we truly made a completely new shift into um, openness of Dynatrace. We were crazy enough to actually 
create a uh, new database. Actually, it's a data lake house. So five years ago, I was, uh, or four years ago, actually, I was saying to my team, no way, we won't create a database. This is done on the market. But then we figured that the status quo of databases does not meet our needs. So this is why we went in there. And this is one fundamental component. It's uh, our Grail uh, Massive Parallel Processing Data Lake House. That is a fundamental cornerstone of openness and allowing customers to access data in an unmatched speed, as well as flexibility to solve observability, security, as well as custom use cases, whether those are business related or uh, some other on top of the digital data. So this was sort of a key fundamental change that um, I think customers are still in the process of realizing as we bring this to more and more customers. And the other key part to this was also because we are now living in a world of exponential data growth. So data growth grows about twice every other year in sort of multiplied exponentially. It reminds me to get, it reminds me to get more cloud stock. <laughs> but but also the problem then is sort of when the data is growing, you how do you process this? You can't export data simply anymore and run it, pull it into your own little app. So we figured uh, with all that market trends, we have to bring the logic to the data. And that's also why very uniquely we also created uh, an, an app engine, sort of the ability to very securely and safely uh, run your own code and routines and algorithms closely with the data. So you can leverage both your massive amounts of petabytes, yottabytes of data with uh, also custom logic. So all the automatic stuff is of course still there, but you could augment the automatic with your own custom. And this brings um, additional powers to the customers and they can gain more value from the data they already own in there. And this brings also us in R&D more speed. Sort of there's another benefit to this. Um, so at the end, a drastic change, fundamental architectural change, but more speed, more value to customers and more use cases. So it should be a win-win-win for everyone. I've got to ask, you've been so automatic with the previous product. Has it required with the use cases, reteaching people to be inquisitive, to try to, these are the things that you can do. Do you have to sort of like re-educate some of the customer base to teach them about like, these are the different things you can do? Or are they inquisitive enough? And they're just like, ah, we're just going to run with it ourselves. We love it. Yeah, it's a bit of both. So there are definitely use cases that are so obvious when we just look at the new abilities in log management, then you can run queries faster and more complex queries. You don't need any indexes up front. Sort of. So those people who have the pain with other systems get that immediately. So this doesn't need much explanation. But leading them to the abilities they have now with also combining workflows with custom applications, build even their own user interface and maybe create uh, their own business app for, for people that don't even know what observability or security tools are doing because now suddenly customers can drastically widen the audience of people in their organizations that actually leverage the data but have no clue about um, observability because they get the custom built up just for their use case. So for instance, we had a telecom company come to us and they have field people about their sort of antennas in the field and they know already they have the data in Dynatrace and, and uh, uh, they are working with us or just thinking about to create a custom app just for that use case. Right. It's... um. 
you you broke the category previously where it wasn't just APM anymore and infrastructure monitoring and and digital experience and now it's like the observability was created and then it was security and it sounds like you're in the process of breaking the category again oh yes um i think definitely and um if we were in the early days as dynatrace and uh, observability company focusing on root cause, we have um, drastically expanded. I see ourselves now much more as an analytics and automation company for actually observability and security. And um, especially on security world, I think the, the, the automation is so much in the stone age that I see here lots of um, potential. Well, Bernd, like I was saying, I could talk to you for hours. Um, I've really appreciated the insight. I'm sure the audience will, the background story of how you started the company. There's so much more underneath the covers. Maybe at some point we can go into more detail. But I did say I was going to do some rapid questions at the end, which made you a little bit nervous. So I saved the best for last. Are you ready for these rapid questions? <laughs> Let's go try it. If you sort of have me one one minute staring at you, then <laughs> that would be unusual. I love it. I love putting you on the spot. So here we go. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? So, well, to my 18-year-old self, um... I don't know, cut my hair, so I don't know. <laughs> Back then, I was really lucky, very curly. <laughs> yeah? I could not picture that. I could not picture that. I mean, it sounds like you've you, you followed your passion. Are you are you doing what you wanted to do as a as a young adult? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when, when I was um, at, at high school, I was really frightened to go to the... Um, courses where it was about business and mechanical engineering because the teachers had told me hey there's a business portion so you need to be good with people and I figured oh shit I'm not really good with people so I maybe <laughs> should not do this but somehow I don't know I still did it uh, and so also at the end of school so back to your 18 uh, uh, age of 18 question Back then, I could never have imagined to have a team of more than five people. Um, but I don't know, somehow I managed to that that don't entirely hate me and uh, get along with me. I think you're underestimating. I think you're pretty well respected. So you've done a very, very good, uh, uh, you've had a very successful career and you're a great leader. Um, what do you? What would you teach kids today? Kids that are coming through school and with all this AI and automation, what advice do you give to the kids? So I give to the kids definitely um, lots of advice to um, think and explore by themselves. Obviously, I um, I love them to teach them a lot in the areas of tech. Um, but foremost, it is helping them understand the, the risks and the dangers in a, good, in a positive way so they can use it to, to their, um, for, for good um, as much as also showing them the good parts in life. So, I mean, it is as simple as uh, showing for fun every day all those uh, fishing mails you get. And so we choke at each other, sort of almost at family dinner. Hey, what fishing message did you get? And that's sort of an easy way to learn about all those risks. And this is sort of much better to teach them to uh, that nothing happens rather than trying to lock down their computers entirely. Um, yeah, nice. So it, it's things like this, um, but also here, uh, sort of me personally, but also at Dynatrace, we have initiatives to um, bring kids closer to the world of tech in a responsible way. Sort of things like um, working with uh, Coder Dojo and kids, or we try other initiatives, sort of we have 
uh, sponsorships with universities about how do you do teaching programs for little ones, even in kindergarten, because this is where it's still mostly about uh, creating, um, I don't know, knitting pullovers or this kind of, or socks like this, versus also ticks. And I'm not saying that you should we should stop this, but it should be a balance because I think it's not about to get more coders. It is more about how can we safely deal with tech in the future? Because every doctor um, has to figure out, do I trust now what I get from ChatGPT or not? So if you don't have a bit of a basic of understanding of tech, then it is pretty hard. So this is sort of more that fundamental belief in here. So let's keep running on that. Where is AI going? If you finish this sentence, AI will dot, 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 dot. AI will continue to change the world. So there is no doubt. But also it is completely overhyped on, on the other hand. Um, or let's let's put it this way, maybe not overhyped, but it is misunderstood. That This is maybe the better way to phrase it. The misunderstanding is that ChatGPT is now magically um, having every answer in the world, which it is just not. At the end of the day, it is a very effective um, system that knows what is the next best probability to add another word to a sentence, just as you asked me the sentence, sort of <laughs> what would I say next to it? So. If, if you really dumb it down, then it's, it is as simple as that. Obviously, we know from the outcome it can create code. Um, it is quite powerful, but also the code creation is nothing more based on the probability of what it has seen. It is ordering those statements one after the other. So, and, and the power of this is very much sort of overrated. But the power of it to understand, or at least to process human language, is for sure much better than ever before in history, and also to generate human language kind of um, stuff. So, and I think this is the really revolutionary part of it. But also now combining these powers with other powers, this is actually then what, what really uh, together is changing the world. I mean, just as simple as, the, as this, ask ChatGPT to multiply 52 with 125. So it will give you an answer, a good answer. It looks right, but it's actually wrong <laughs> because it was just doing a probability on that, on the words. So what is happening, for instance, on ChatGPT, it is building plugins so that it could connect to, for instance, Wolfram Research or other systems that can give precise answers to questions, sort of do an actual mathematical calculation and then feed this back. And in that combination will make it smarter, but it also means that AI systems sort of, especially today when we speak about AI, most people think of ChatGPT, which is a large language model type of AI. Um, <clears throat> so that this type of AI will never be precise, but always has to reach out to a third party system, but then it needs to be marked as such so that people will know what is another part that is probabilistic and maybe hallucinated. Mm -hmm. And what part of this is actually precise and the correct answer that you can trust? And I think this is where we are not there there yet. Um, some search engines on the market try at least to do some call outs. So this was sort of from this site and sort of, but, but that's not clear. And this is to me also the biggest danger that people just believe what those systems spit out versus uh, there is a clear delineation what is generated and what is fact-based. And that's also what sort of we at Dynatrace um, have just announced um, a very different approach to AI. Actually, this is, we, we coined the term hypermodal AI, 
because this is based on the belief you can't trust just the probabilistic model. I mean, sorry, yes. I mean, for just for being creative, yes. I mean, you get a creative thing, but if you need to really automate an IT system and you need to trust that this is the orchestration works properly, as much as you trust an autonomous car to not follow the navigation system that has still an old map that goes into the river and it follows that sort of, right? So you trusted that there's something more fact-based. We have actually combined with hypermodal AI um, our completely fact-based causal AI with our predictive AI and combined this with a large language model sort of to bring both worlds together and clearly have then the generative AI, which runs this ChatGPT like large language model, um, understand the human language, understand the intent, but then it reaches out to the fact-based um, other Dynatrace Davies AI uh, systems, get the facts back and combine it then into the response to make it clear to the user, here's the generated part, but also here is then the actual effects uh, from your system. Because this is to me then in a responsible way to work with AI, to me the, the sort of the, the right approach for people. I was nearly jokingly going to say, please don't tell me you're going to change the status quo of how the AI works and come out with your own version of a chat GPT. And then you've just gone in to describe that basically said, here's the limitations of chat GPT and here's how we're going to fix it. So you are actually still true to your word to challenge that status quo and make sure that the answers that people are getting are the accurate ones. So amazing problem solving and continued innovation. Congratulations. Thank you. No, it, that's that's the fun part. Always pushing. Bern, I've had a wonderful time going down memory lane, hearing your stories. It's been great to connect with you again. And um, I really look forward to seeing what you're going to be up to next. And I would love to catch up for a beer with you sometime if you're in Australia with the LIA or whatever it is on the end and <laughs> if I'm in Austria. Yeah, I look forward to that. Thanks, Bert. Thank you so much, Dave.